This morning, I, I thought it would be a good thing for us to turn over to the book of Galatians. In fact, I've been thinking this for a couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife can tell you I was already kind of kicking around the idea of pulling out of Romans for just a uh, Sunday and coming and looking at this particular chapter because, because it is a, 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 an encapsulated version of what we have been reading in the book of Romans. It is a complementary passage in many ways and, and enriches our understanding. And I think what is so powerful and unique about this in Romans uh, uh, chapter 2 is... Uh, that this is really the first time Paul ever writes, or at least as, as we have in the New Testament, we ever have recorded Paul's teaching on the doctrines that we have been studying in the book of Romans. Primarily the doctrine of justification. That is the theme of the book of Romans. That is the backbone of what we've been looking at for all the way from back from chapter 1, but especially in uh, chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6. And as we come to today to look at Galatians, this is the first time Paul ever uses the word. The first manifesto, if you will, on his idea of justification. And it came as uh, probably, we might say, an unplanned event. It really came in what he records for us here is a speech that was a reaction, an impromptu defense of the doctrine that he was, uh, uh, if you will, compelled to give in light of some things taking place in the Galatian churches. And so Paul not only gave that speech, but he eventually records it here in Galatians chapter 2 for us in brief form, but in its, if you will, seed form. These ideas that had already been uh, uh, settled in his heart and then uh, came, if you will, to its full uh, glory in the book of Romans. This idea of justification really is, is the idea that, that answers the dilemma every person in this room has. It answers the dilemma every person born in the world has. It is the dilemma of your standing, your separation from God. The fact that you are wrong in His sight. That you need to be right before Him. And if you don't understand those basic concepts, and if you don't understand the basic gospel that Paul spells out for us here, you can't understand Him You can't understand the Bible. You can't understand Christianity. That's why Luther said, as we've quoted in the past, if the article of justification be once lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. The more I study that, the more I believe that. The more I preach it, the more I understand it. And the more I am convinced that this is the foundation on which we build our walk with God, our standing with God, and our church. Paul, you remember, is uh, giving in in Galatians chapter 2 this recording, this historical confrontation that he had with the apostle Peter. It was uh, a clash of the titans, if you will, in the early church. And it's remarkable 
in many ways, if nothing else, just because it gives us some insight into the relationship between these men and what it was which united them, not any sense of personal loyalty to one another, not sort of uh, scratching one another's backs, but what it was which united them, which was a standing and defense over the truths of the gospel. So much so that they were willing to confront one another in public space, if necessary, to guard this doctrine. Paul's giving this account, all this that took place uh, in Antioch after the Jerusalem Council. He tells us of a confrontation uh, that uh, really, uh, really presents to us, if you will, the incident without the outcome. We don't know at the end of the day how Peter received uh, this rebuke. He apparently agreed with Paul and corrected his thinking and his behavior because we never hear about it again in any other book nor in any uh, historical documents from the early church. As a matter of fact, more than a decade later in Peter's second epistle, he will write with great affirmations and affection for Paul and for his writings. And so we, we assume the Lord used this in the heart of a humble man like Peter and in the life of the church. But it comes to us in dramatic fashion. Paul doesn't really give us the outcome of his relationship with Peter. That that just sort of fades in the background as he, if you will, takes that incident and launches from it into the main arguments that were confronting him and confronting the churches of that day. The main issues, answering and responding to the main criticisms that were assaulting themselves against the preaching of the gospel as it came through Paul. And he moves, if you will, very quickly from interacting with Peter in that speech to interacting with his, his uh, uh, Judaizing or we might even say legalistic opponents in the Galatian church. You can see uh, beginning in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, he turns to address them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is Paul as he moves in chapter 3 into his, if you will, interaction, his dialogue, his diatribe with the uh, Galatian uh, 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 opponents and detractors of his gospel. But before he gets there, he, he uses this historical incident this historical confrontation with Peter to encapsulate what it was that was so core and central to what he preached. If you're someone who doesn't like to hear a lot of theological preaching, if you're someone who tires of hearing justification, you would very quickly tire listening to the Apostle Paul. You would very quickly tire listening to the preaching of the early church. This was the gospel. This was what Paul preached. This is what he said, I decided to know uh, apart from everything else. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified to the Corinthians. He says that. Now this whole concept is, is so essential because it is so exclusively Christian. I mean, you can have moral stories, you can stand up in a TED talk 
and tell people how to be, you know, better leaders or better husbands or better workers or better communicators. You can do all those sort of moralizing on life in all kinds of venues, but this doctrine is exclusively Christian. It's the, the backbone of everything we preach and And it comes out of, if you will, a a legal system in the Old Testament, this idea of condemnation, this idea of justification in light of guiltiness is really built off of what was already revealed, as we'll see later on, in the Old Testament. To be justified is to be found not guilty, It is to be found with no injustice, it is to be found with no violation of God's law, no violation, in this case, uh, of His holy decrees. To be justified is to be found completely compliant with everything that He says, in perfection with it, declared not to be guilty and to be holy by His standards. And so Paul's whole concern, as the Bible's whole concern, is how do you gain that? How do you achieve that? How do you stand in full confidence before God knowing that He and all of His wrath and His anger has passed over and you stand completely at peace and in a relationship of love with Him? How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, How do you achieve perfection? He says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this is all about how you gain perfection, how you can be justified, or as we say in modern terms, how you can be saved. You know, my sons and I took a trip out west uh, a few years back and rented a car, of course, when we were out there. Promptly when we got out of the airport, we went to the first place you go when you're out west. We went to In-N-Out Burger, and as we were finishing up our uh, food, you know, we had a few hours of driving ahead of us, so I told my sons, I said, well, just, you know, grab your stuff, you can finish up your fries and your burgers in the car, and and one of them said, well, but dad, we can't take this in the car, we'll mess it up. I mean, they had never sat in a car, unfortunately, that clean before, Um, (laughs) So they thought, you know, we might drop something on the floor and, and, and create a mess. And I, and I told them, well, don't worry about that. I mean, the rental car uh, company, they understand that. They expect it to be a little bit messy when they get back. And, and you know, we'll mess it up and they'll clean it up. And uh, it's not a big deal. You know, you can sort of uh, accommodate all that. But you can imagine if the standard was that you had to return the car in new condition. If when you rented something that you, you know that nice car smell uh, had to have absolutely no dirt on the outside, absolutely no dirt on the inside, nothing on the carpets, nothing in the carpets, no smudges on any surfaces, no spills, no signs of wear and tear, no signs on the, uh, of wear on the tires, no signs of wear and tear on the engine, on the engine parts, no dust, no grime, no dust on the underbody, uh, no dust on the wheels, no you know, brake dust or anything anywhere. If that was the expectation when you return the car, that you return it in absolutely new condition, you can imagine what kind of vacation that would be. Not very pleasant. Because you would spend all of your time in anxiety and fear. 
You wouldn't be able to focus on anything. You'd always be worried. You'd always be defensive of anyone who might get near and taint your car or get in your car and taint it. You would greatly restrict what went on and you wouldn't really do much at all, uh, 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 if anything at all, because you would be so fearful of doing it wrong. Well, that's how so many people live their lives religiously. That's how they view religion. In an effort to present themselves as perfectly as possible and try to protect themselves from any kind of condemnation, they're constantly trying to clean up what is contaminated. Their lives are filled with worry and fret. They're putting up all kinds of barriers uh, from people who might contaminate them. They're, uh, they're avoiding the so-called sinners, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, if you will, of the world. They're always double-checking things, trying to make sure that they can clean up where they messed up. They're always trying to clean up the spots and wipe away the filth and trying to, to do their best to meet the standard that they think God demands because this is the way they feel before God, dirty and unwelcome and unclean. Well, Paul says this is, this is not God's will. In fact, the, 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 the reality is that no matter how hard you try, you'll always be filthy. No matter how hard you try, you will have, if you will, the wear and tear of sin on your life and your body. And it's exactly this gospel that Paul preaches. In fact, if you go down to chapter 3, verse 10... Paul outlines this. He says in verse 10, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. So he's just, he's just conceding. Look, it's, this is what the law demands, and if you are going to live by that, you're going to be cursed, you're going to be condemned, because no one can keep every bit of it. And so in verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. So since that's the standard, it's obvious no one's going to meet the standard. And so God made this alternative way for you to live, for you to be acceptable, for you to escape curse and condemnation. There's this alternative way for you to present to God the perfection that He demands. And Paul says, it is by faith. It's not what you do, it's what you believe. It's on the basis of what you believe that God will accept you. And what you believe is right there in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This is what you believe. You believe that when Christ hung on the cross that He there took your curse, the one you so, so desperately deserved. And, and that belief justifies. It justifies. Not keeping laws. Now this is Paul's Gospel, and this is what he's contending for at the end of Galatians chapter 2. That it is this gospel by faith alone and nothing else. The problem was that within the context of this historical setting, there were others, beloved friends of his, Peter and Barnabas, 
who were at least giving the impression that it wasn't simply by believing these things, but it was maybe a combination of believing and doing. Paul talks about it in verse 11. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James, that's just simply a reference to the Jerusalem church. James was the, the sort of chief pastor, we would say the senior pastor of that church there. He was the prominent figurehead of the church. And so sometimes instead of referring to the church, they just simply refer to it as, as James. There were certain men who came from James and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's confronting them with the truths of the gospel. And the issue here is, of course, the issue of dietary laws, it's the issue of, of Jewish uh, uh, social interaction even. Jews were taught from their birth, not only were they supposed to eat certain foods and not eat certain foods, they were even taught from their birth that they were never to share a table with Gentiles. And so although Peter had uh, learned the gospel, although he had recently affirmed the gospel as it was stated by Paul, whenever these people came down from the Jerusalem church, he was reverting back to behavior that was out of keeping with the gospel. He was reverting back to behavior which gave the impression that in order to be acceptable before God, he had to continue to keep those rules. Peter was like so many who are, if you will, still developing in their maturity. He was prone to the fear of man. He, become, he had become fearful of what the rest of these people think, were thinking. You see it at the end of verse 12. This was the driving thing behind it. It wasn't his understanding. It wasn't his doctrine. It was the fact that he was now leading by fear. Well, Paul wouldn't succumb to that. He was not going to abdicate his role and his responsibility for the fear of man. He was going to speak the truth, even if it meant confronting so eminent a person as Peter. And so he confronts him. He confronts him because if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Galatians chapter 3. He understood this truth. Excuse me, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you've fallen away from grace. He's addressing in chapter 5 the issue of circumcision, but in chapter 2 it's the issue of dietary laws. It's all the same thing. What he's saying is if you accept even one thing, even one law, even one sort of regulation that must be kept in order to make you pure and just before God, if you accept even one It doesn't matter if it's circumcision, it doesn't matter if it's dietary laws, it doesn't matter if it's baptism, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, attending and being a member of a certain church, it doesn't matter what it is. If you accept even one law in addition to the work of Christ, you are completely severed from Christ. 
And so you can imagine how Paul felt when he saw Peter and Barnabas beginning to compromise, beginning to sell out on the truth for the sake of fear. And so he recounts his confrontation with Peter and he gives to us what are essentially three reasons why he cannot turn his back on these essential truths of the gospel. The first one is given to us in verse 16, and it's simply this. It's the confession that they all affirmed. The confession that they all affirmed. He's, he's confronted Peter, and, and he, he sort of carries it over in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is what they had just affirmed. If you were to go back and do the historical background of this passage, what you would find is that they had just gathered in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15 tells the story. They had just had a church conference, a church dialogue, a church debate about this very issue. And having thought through all of the issues, they affirmed these truths. They affirm these truths. This is what they believe. This is why they became Christians. They became Christians because, as Paul says at the end of verse 16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That is their core conviction. We were brought up as Jews. We understand the law. We all came to the same conclusion, the same conclusion which the law tells us. We are not righteous. We cannot keep it. We cannot be justified by it. In fact, this is almost a direct quotation from Psalm 143 in the Greek Septuagint, an affirmation of the Old Testament that no one can be made righteous by keeping the law. They were saying and they were affirming that it's inadequate. It was never given by God to make you right before Him. It was never given by God to make you justified before Him. Paul and other Jews who sincerely sought to keep it understood this. They were taught passages, for example, Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and rules that if a person does them, he shall live. He will live by them. That's how you live. That's how you gain eternal life. And as that particular passage, by the way, was picked up and repeated and exegeted and taught through the years and even into what we sometimes call the second temple period, as the Jews used that, it became increasingly obvious what they understood about it. They understood this to be eternal life. They, they would live. And Paul's saying, we realize we can't do that. There's no way. There's no way anyone can keep the entire law, all the statutes, without ultimately facing the condemnation. So he's saying to Peter and every other Jewish Christian who came to place their faith in Christ, this is what we affirmed. This is what we believe. This, of course, made Paul very unpopular 
among the legalists of the day, those who wanted to take Christ and yet hold on to some legalistic performance standard. And so they loved to tag Paul with sort of derogatory monikers along the way. They would tag him as, uh, you know, in some cases, uh, one who was uh, too wimpy, too meek and mild, and, and, uh, and uh, as he says, uh, uh, too gentle, uh, because of his meekness in Christ. He's weighty and strong in his letters, but he's meek and mild in personal appearance. They would tag him as a, uh, as a uh, um, uh, basically a heretic, a, a, a one who taught against the law of God. This is the way they accused him ultimately and put him into a custody of the Romans. But one of the more broad, if you will, accusations was simply that Paul through his gospel, was becoming and promoting the idea of people being sinners. This is one of the, this is one of the biggest. It's just simply that he was a sinner. That if you get rid of laws, if you get rid of these performance standards, if you make God, your, 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 your relationship with God based solely on what you believe and not on what you do, then you are necessarily going to promote sinfulness. And so you see in verses 17 and 18, this is the second point that Paul makes, and it's the criticism that he received. The criticism that he received is is that he would become a sinner like all the rest of the Gentiles. He says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners found to be sinners, that is, like the rest of the Gentiles, uh, not like the Jews, is Christ then the servant of sin? This is a dichotomy that they made, the way that they viewed the world. They were the law keepers, they were God's holy people, and everyone else was sinners. Uh, They were the ones who lived by the law, and everyone else were the people who didn't. They were the righteous And everyone else were the unrighteous. And so Paul's asking and answering the question, does this move away from trusting the law mean that we become sinners? Is this gospel that I preach encouraging people to sin? And his answer there is, of course not. May genita, may it never be. By no means. Certainly not. The gospel doesn't make us a a sinner. The gospel defines us as a sinner. The gospel doesn't make us a sinner. The gospel reveals that we are a sinner. It clearly defines that no one can be justified by faith. It clearly defines that no one is a law keeper. It clearly defines that there is no dichotomy. There is no righteous and unrighteous or law keepers and unlaw keepers. It defines that everybody is a violator of the law. In fact, what Paul goes on to say is that what makes you a sinner before God is not to abandon some legalistic standard. And by the way, it's what makes you a sinner before God is not simply to be labeled a sinner by the legalist. Being sinner before God is not freeing yourselves from the shackles of Jewish ceremony or, or from the shackles of some legalistic religion. But what makes you a transgressor? What makes you a true transgressor? Paul says in verse 18, is if I rebuild what I tore down. 
If I go back to putting my trust in works, if I go back to putting my trust in laws, then I go back to being a sinner. I go back to that place of condemnation. If I tore down the walls of the law and go back and rebuild them, as he says down in verse 21, that is to nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So his whole point here is that it's not a sin to be called sinner by the legalist. It's a sin to turn your back on grace. It's not a sin to be called a sinner by legalist, but it makes you a sinner if you abandon that which saves you. If you abandon that which justifies you would be a better way to say it. That would be a true transgressor. That would truly alienate you from God. And so his whole point is, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sin. I don't want to be found a sinner. And so I'm going to hold to this gospel. And that sort of leads to his, his third point. That whole idea that his gospel might actually lead him to be more of a sinner than he previously was leads him to his third point. It's, by the way, what we are moving into even in the book of Romans the, the, the essence of this doctrine, which he says here in verses 19 through 21, as he talks about the crucifixion of his old life. This is really the third reason why he cannot compromise this gospel. As he says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I died, he says, through the law. The law put me to death. All the law ever did for me, as a matter of fact, was pronounce me dead. All it ever did for me was show my condemnation over and over and over again. And so I accepted the death sentence. I accepted it and I died, he says. Through the law, I died. And because I died, I now live for God. You remember this basic point, we saw it and we referred to it over and over again in Romans 6-7, through 7, particularly in verse 6 of Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin, that is the, the life of sin, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. That is, as he goes on to explain, if we die with him, if we accept the pronunciation of our death sentence over our old life and its condemnation, if we accept that, we believe that we will be resurrected with him. And so as Paul says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This was His manifesto in life. This is, this is the way I live. It's no longer me. I died. I was crucified. Paul the Apostle, Shane Kohler, whoever it might be, is dead. And now what you see living in the flesh is just me living for God. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, him, loved me and gave Himself for me. This is His answer to those who says that He became a sinner by getting rid of the law. 
He says, no, I became a dead man. I became a dead man by the law. Through the law, I died. And because of that death, what remains in the flesh is God's. The gospel, rather than making him more of a sinner, it actually killed his old sinful life. It actually put that old life to death. I mean, these, are, these aren't just ideas. These aren't just doctrines. This is actual change in a person's life. This is a new creation. This is a new birth. The power of God transforming you from within when He gives you When you accept the condemnation that your sin brings, God gives you a new heart, makes you a new creature, gives you a new affection, a new holy desire. This is being born again. And Paul says, this is what happened to me. John Calvin says, those who live to the law, therefore have never felt the power of the law or properly understood what the law means, for the law, when truly perceived, makes us die. So these people who were coming against Paul, these legalists who were saying that he needed to add rules back to his life so that he would no longer be a sinner, they didn't understand the message of the law. The message of the law declared already that Paul was a sinner. He accepted the declaration and he died. Their problem is they haven't accepted the declaration yet. Their problem is that they still think that they're not sinners. They still think that somehow they are righteous because of what they do, not what they believe. Paul says, through the law I died. And I live, but the life I live, I live for Christ. This is um, not anything new, by the way. This isn't anything profound. This is exactly the same gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ taught. People are always suggesting that there's some sort of discontinuity between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then all the other books of the Bible. You know, that, 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 that somehow Jesus didn't speak in the same terms that Paul spoke in. That, that when you turn to Paul and you read things like justification, even sanctification or whatever it might be, you don't find those kind of terms and You don't find that kind of language in the preaching of Jesus. Jesus' message was more simple. It was more basic. It was more moral. And so they're always trying to drive this wedge between Paul and Jesus as if Paul taught a different gospel than Jesus. Well, that's not true at all. In fact, this is what what Paul is preaching here. It comes exactly from Christ. This language of crucifixion is the language of Christ. When Christ calls us to Himself, He calls us to die. He calls us to accept the condemnation of the law so that we might live. This is the way he says it in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the language of death. It's the language of crucifixion. Jesus is saying, if you want to be his disciple, you must crucify yourself. Your old life of sin must come under the judgment of the death penalty. And so a disciple no longer is to make his own interest and his own desires and his own goals and his own dreams the supreme concerns of his life. True believers, true followers, no longer respond to their own personal wills but to God's because they died. 
And this is just simply the recognition that your life must be given to God. It must be. You cannot be a Christian if you haven't given over your entire life to Him. No one can be a disciple, he says, unless they renounce themselves. The word deny is arneomai, means to completely disown something, to utterly abandon something. It's like a, a broken piece of equipment, a broken toy that you have, that you maybe once cherished a lot, but now it's broken. And you don't normally set it up and just continue to admire it. What do you do? You toss it in the trash. Or you may have admired your life. You may have thought much of yourself at one point. But what happens now when you come under the condemnation of the law is you abandon that life. You disassociate yourself from it. You throw it. As Paul says, I counted it all as rubbish on the trash heap. On the trash heap. This is where you must come if you're going to come to Christ. You have to come to that place where you are sick of your life. You're sick of your sin. You're sick of all of the animosity and all the conflict and all of the rage and all of the guilt and all the shame and all the stuff that your sin has brought you. You're sick of all that stuff so much so that you're willing to throw your old life on the trash heap. You disown yourself. You disassociate yourself with yourself. I'm sick of myself. I don't want any more of myself. I've tried everything I know to make something out of my life. I can't do it. I've tried to do what I think is right. I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed with my failure. I'm overwhelmed with my disappointment. I'm overwhelmed with my emptiness. I'm overwhelmed with my sinfulness. That's what Jesus is asking for. That is the place of belief. It's a complete recognition the old life has no right to continue. In fact, Jesus goes on in the next verse of Luke. He says, whoever would save his life or her life must first lose it. In order to be saved... You have to completely lose your old life. Salvation doesn't come any other way. You might have religion. You might have good works that you do to please your parents and to please your friends. You might have activity, but you don't have faith. If you haven't come to that place where you hate and despise your sinful life so much, you renounce it. You haven't come to the place of belief. And so this is Paul's point. I've been crucified. I was crucified so that the life I now live, I live to God. I live, as he says, by faith in the Son of God. That is, everything I do is now an act of devotion, an act of faith to Him. I came, he says, to this understanding where the law confirmed my own unrighteousness. I was overwhelmed with it. I was overwhelmed with the death penalty and I accepted it. And so I took up my cross. And so now I live, if I live, I live for Christ. This is the way, listen to the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For we who are alive, we who are alive, are always being given over to death 
for the sake of Jesus so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. We who are alive are always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. You see, you'll never be saved unless you first die. You'll never really find life unless you first lose it. You'll never live for God unless you die to yourself. And without first crucifying Paul, the life of Jesus could never be manifested in him. This is not the gospel that you hear. I understand you... This is not what is commonly preached. The gospel you hear today tells you that Jesus wants to give you all kinds of things. He wants to give you peace. He wants to give you, you know, a happy home. He wants to give you success. He wants to give you prosperity. Jesus wants to make you a better salesman. Jesus wants to help you score more touchdowns. Jesus wants to, you know, make all your children turn out the right way. I don't know what it is, but... Jesus really is not here to make you feel better about yourself. He's here to make you feel worse to the place where you die. And the gospel isn't about elevating your self-image and putting an end to all of your negative thinking. Robert Schuller taught this before he passed. He says, The master plan of God is, is designed around the deepest needs of human beings, which he says are self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. The pearl of great price is genuine self-esteem and self-respect. That's the gospel of modern-day evangelicalism. It's the feel-good gospel, the feel-good about yourself, the glory of God replaced with the satisfaction of man, abandoning your your life in honor of Christ has been replaced with Christ honoring you. But the call of Christ is take up your cross if you want to be His disciple. This is the gospel that had gripped Paul's life. The gospel that had gripped his life didn't issue uh, from statements of self-esteem. It devastated his self-esteem. It declared him worthy of death. It demanded that he be crucified. And having died, he took no longer control of his own life, but handed it over to God. The life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave Himself so that He could redeem you. And the glory is that by losing your life, as Jesus says, you really find it. By losing your life, you realize it's not found in all the sinful pursuits and all the selfish endeavors that I used to be consumed with. By losing your life, you find the deceptiveness of sin which constantly lured you into things which brought you Guilt and shame and conflict. By losing your life, you lose all that. And by losing your life, you find what real life is. Life, real life, life of joy, is life lived in slavery to God. It's life lived in slavery to Him. This is the Gospel of Romans. It's the Gospel of Galatians. It's the Gospel that Paul would not let anyone compromise. He would stand and he would defend it because he understood that the gospel, the church, Christianity, and his own faith were built on these pillars. 
We're going to close in a song and a prayer in just a moment, but I wanted to urge you, if you're here today and you, all you've ever heard is that gospel of a feel-good message, I hope that you have been struck today by what the truth of God's Word says. I hope that you've been struck by the reality of what God calls you to. And my prayer is that you would hear it and you would respond in faith. No longer presenting to God what you think are your deeds of righteousness and your goodness, but presenting to God your utter failure so that He can take your life crucified and pour His life into it. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song, as I said. Father, we're grateful this morning for these reminders. We never tire as the song says, of hearing the old, old story. Lord, help us then to rest in it. Help us to revel in it and help us to preach it. Give us voices to declare what the law says about us, what the law says about every person, that we are sinners. But sinners so that we can be found in you, justified, saved by your grace. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for how they ministered our heart today. We thank you for how they secure us for all eternity. And we pray for those who for the first time today are hearing your call to die. I pray, Lord, that they would take up their cross. I pray that they would follow you in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.